because I, you know, could definitely have been seen as starting as a kind of influencer and an Instagrammer, I think there was a, probably a perception that I wouldn't be able to, to do what the business is now. And I think sometimes it almost acts as an incentive to be like, no, I've got to show you that I can do this. It was it, it's taken to get to a turnover of about 20 million to be not a food blogger. That's Ella Mills, founder of Deliciously Ella, a plant-based food blog she started after an experience with chronic illness that left her physically and mentally depleted. The blog blew up, and its popularity led to her first recipe book, which was released in January 2015. It became the fastest-selling debut cookbook of all time in the UK and spent eight weeks at number one on Amazon across every category. Deliciously Ella now has 40 plant-based food products stocked in more than 6,000 stores across the UK, an app and more best-selling cookbooks, a deli and an expected turnover of £20 million in 2022. But it hasn't always been a smooth ride, which we're going to get into. Ella has over 2 million followers on Instagram, whilst the blog racked up over 130 million hits in its first four years. Now, social media has played a big role in the growth of Ella's business, but she explains how the experience of personal fame has impacted her as she's built the brand. I always love speaking to entrepreneurs whose businesses are based on personal experience. And I think it's the perfect time for you to be hearing about Ella's journey, because we're publishing this in January, when many of you are going to be thinking about the changes you want to make this year, the new habits you want to form and how to improve your life. We all know how hard that can be, so we wanted to learn from someone who's actually been there and done it. So, welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. In 2011, Ella, in her early 20s, was just finishing her second year of university when she started experiencing severe symptoms. Out of nowhere, my body literally just stopped working. And I couldn't regulate my digestion, my circulation, my immune system wasn't functioning properly, my heart rate. So when I stood up, my heart rate would be about 180, 190 and my blood pressure would drop. So you lose your vision every single time you stand up and you faint or you feel like you're going to faint, but you you literally black out, like you can't, can't see the world. It creates a kind of chronic dizziness, which means that walking is nigh on impossible. I had chronic infections. That meant I spent almost three years consistently. The longest break I took from antibiotics was 72 hours. I used to have to go into hospital for antibiotic drips. Never, could never get on top of it. Had chronic fatigue, brain fog. My body just didn't work. I had a huge amount of pain. It was awful. Like, and I, I almost don't know if I realised how bad it was because my way of dealing with it was by completely checking out. That was the kind of big mental health challenge was just, yeah, it was this kind of full apathy and almost a kind of catatonic state of just checking out completely from the world. And I I stayed like that for about a year um, as I cycled through all the different medications, all the different options. To no one promised that they would work. I just assumed that they would. And then as it became clearer and clearer that they weren't going to work. I think that's my mental health kind of went on a really steady but sharp decline from from that point onwards. Anyway, I became very interested when I ran out of road with medications in diet and in lifestyle. So I started 
teaching myself to cook and and started a, a recipe website deliciousiella.com to teach myself to do it it literally changed everything I mean slowly god don't get me wrong like it's not like I just changed my diet and the next day like all the symptoms were gone I think it took me about three years to really really stabilize and probably four to five to be quote-unquote normal whatever normal really is but it started never with the intention of being a business it was a very kind of personal journey I was quite nervous of of what other people would think and and whether I was any good at it and you know I was completely new Though she didn't plan for it, starting her blog would put Ella on a path to building her own business with her husband, Matthew Mills, who is the CEO of the company. Her family has a big history in business. Her mother's grandfather was Lord Sainsbury of the supermarket-owning family. Ella's father is a former MP. Her childhood gave her stability in some senses, but not others. There were some good bits and, and, you know, I was very privileged in my upbringing. Um financial security but emotionally it was a very complicated childhood and something that's taken me into my 30s to feel comfortable to start actually unpacking um and I think also when you're in something you don't always realize that it's maybe not completely normal and actually I don't think I had anywhere near enough appreciation you know when I was very young it takes you a little bit of time I think to realize you know, whether your normal is normal. But I think it was, and, and you know, I say this with like a real pinch of salt, um, which is that I think it was a really good lesson in the fact that financial stability isn't emotional stability. And, you know, I think that's something I've just become very interested in as an adult. And, and I think it's informed a lot of my decision making. And, you know, especially now as a parent, you, you know, actually like more, more isn't always more. And I say that with such an awareness now of, you know, absolutely. And, you know, particularly within a cost of living crisis, that there is an element to that, which absolutely, you know, feeling able to pay your mortgage and keep your children safe. Absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm talking kind of beyond that. And I know there's a huge amount of research in that, that beyond a certain pay threshold, happiness doesn't increase. And I think it was just a I guess it was a a lived experience of that. I think from the outside, you could have looked at it and thought, what a happy family. And the reality is that we were anything but. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I uh, I ask these questions a lot because I'm curious myself about this whole intersection. And actually, you know, for listeners of me over the last five years, you know, my questions this year have been so much more around money, not because of anything other than I became a dad for the first time. And I then started to really have a attitude towards money and how I think of money and how my wife does. And it suddenly became more than just a flippant, not given much conscious thought to. And obviously, you know, the spoils of entrepreneurship, you know, you, you go on a journey from penniless. In fact, funny enough, I was just explaining, one of my colleagues was asking me, you know, why <laughs> many years ago I was taking Huel. And I was like, I mean, because I was plant-based and I was earning 12K a year because I was an entrepreneur and it was like 7P a day or something. I was like, no no more insight than that wasn't because I like the flavor or whatever. And I was reflecting on the fact that I didn't have any money. Therefore, I was eating the cheapest thing that I could where I wasn't actually feeling terrible. But fast forward, part of the arc of the journey is, you know, you uh, quite likely end up much more successful, much better financially off, etc. And so your kids 
will have a very different view of the world and upbringing. And so how do you manage that really delicate balance? Because it can be one of those things if you don't pay attention to and you're not consciously curious about, you can accidentally create loads of habits unconsciously and don't know how, I don't know enough about child psychology yet, but you just don't know how they'll play out. And so I've become so, so, so interested in this question, not just from other entrepreneurs, but from parents too, which is what is your relationship with like money when you were younger and how has that helped you think about your relationship with money now uh, relative to your kids? So with that insight, what, what, what are your thoughts, your de- most, le- most recent developed thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I'm so aware of that. I've got two children there, two and a half, three and a half. And I am so aware of ensuring from a much earlier age, they have a sense of how lucky they are and how privileged they are and how much they should never, ever, ever take that for granted. And that's something definitely to both my husband and I that's so important. And also to realise that that it comes with a massive amount of work um, and that we kind of pour absolutely everything that we do into this. I think one of the biggest problems is this sense of expectation, I think, sometimes that we have in the world and, and we want we want so many things and we, we're not always kind of willing necessarily to put in all the work that it takes to get there. And I think certainly if someone had told me how hard it would be owning a business, growing a business, I don't know if I ever, I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I don't know if I ever would have done it because it's it's so relentless and it's so all-encompassing and it's so intense. I spent the whole part of my, I say early career, I spent most of my career over the last 10, oh God, almost 11 years, um, just completely trying to hide from everything. You know, I was really embarrassed by my family. My great, great, great grandfather started Sainsbury's and I was, I, I'd hidden it. I'd never told anyone. And then when there was a lot of press around my first book, it came out, I, not through me. And there was just this immediate assumption that everyone had, everything had just been given to me. I hadn't done any work. I can hand on heart say, obviously I had the privilege of, I still lived at home with my parents and they, you know, looked after me a hundred percent, but no one had done anything for the business. And no one ever has the irony is that Sainsbury's were the last um, of our stockists to list us. We don't have any different, we have probably the least senior relationship with them than we do with anyone else we work with. No one in my family's worked in the business for decades, like such a long time before my parents even met. Um, They have nothing to do with the company anymore. Um, But there's obviously, you know, such a, assumption you know and all the press was like my mum was the heiress she's not an heiress the family haven't owned the company for decades um anyway but I I hid from it for so long and I was so embarrassed about it because I just assumed that people would look at me and they would think that I'd be spoiled that I'd be unkind that I'd be ungracious you know etc and they would instantaneously not like me and I was I was very 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 conscious of that and um But it's interesting because actually they did something extraordinary, you know, and it was my grandfather and his brothers and and their cousin that were the last people to to work in the business. And they were the ones that turned it into what it is today, which is one of the biggest brands this country's ever seen, you know, and talking to my grandfather about it, it's 
so fascinating what they did and how they looked at it and how they evolved. What started off initially as a grocery cart, literally a cart, and it became a shop because he wanted to marry um, the daughter of a dairyman who had a shop. That's why Sainsbury's started. And they grew it into this and it's it's extraordinary. And they also became the most philanthropic British family ever. So like they have done the most amazing things, but I spent my whole life hiding from the fact that I was related to them because I assumed that everyone would automatically hate me because of it. I mean, shame is such a fascinating topic in itself around, around this whole thing, right? And I guess also... Um, I'm so curious for uh, to understand a little bit about, so obviously you, Deliciously Ella is a well-known brand in itself, but you are one of the OG influencers in the UK. And so um, you can tell that I'm not an OG influencer, that's why I use language like that. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, as someone who's also then unusually personally famous, how do you reflect on that? pre-kids versus post-kids do you treat it really differently yeah I mean I never it's funny I would never describe myself as an influencer or kind of I guess see myself in that way because I, I never I never started it to be known that was never ever the intention of Delicious Ciela and then you know it's always been about empowering people with their health and their well-being and never tried to be just about kind of me or like you know so I'll never ever share what I'm wearing or those sorts of things I'm, I'm like very very clear it has to be related to health and well-being in some capacity um and so I've I was never kind of that keen on on that side of things and I'm, I made a very conscious decision really early on that I, I didn't want to be known for me I was really happy to be known um and and empowered by um, having conversations around health and well-being and opening up um, these sorts of topics, um, which is obviously fantastic talking to you today or doing press interviews, etc. But it's always about delicious Ciela in some capacity and why we need to look after our health and well-being and how we can do that and what that looks like. And it was never, you know, I said no to any single you know, whether that was like a reality TV show or whether that was like a some kind of press event or red carpet type thing. I just, I never wanted to do that. And I don't say that with judgment of people who do want to do that, but that's just not me. I'm a massively introverted person and that just doesn't, it just doesn't make me tick in any shape or form. But I think certainly there's been this kind of interesting journey because when Delicious Ciela started, in lots of ways, it was really a pseudonym. You know, I don't think there really was any distinction between Ella, the person, and Delicious Ella, the brand. And it wasn't until kind of the brand started to really take off and be in, you know, on supermarket shelves and be a granola and be an oat bar and be an almond that I started to feel quite strange about this blurriness between the brand and the person and the more people who came into the team and the more brilliant you know really senior people with fantastic experience in this industry came in the stranger also became to me to kind of have it as though I was representative and I was the person that knew everything when I didn't know huge swathes of things and and then I guess it exactly it coincided then with when my daughter was my first daughter was born in mid 2019 that it just felt as though it was 
you know, they, we needed to be really clear that Delicious Yellow was a brand and it was a company and it was representative of a community of several million people and an internal team of 50 or so people. It wasn't me. And I might have kind of embedded the DNA and the mission into the company. But what the company is today is not because of me. It's, you know, I've played a role in it. Of course I have. But it's, you know, it's absolutely a team effort. And I think I found quite a lot of freedom, I think, in that separation and that sense of, I guess, almost kind of in a weird way, like almost having your identity back um, and kind of carving out a little bit more about who you are and how you want to be seen and defined as opposed to when you're kind of, yeah, inseparable from the brand. I think it was trickier. Really interesting, by the way. I think that is a masterclass in knowing what you want and knowing yourself. Yeah, I've got friends who weren't necessarily honest with themselves and were on that fame journey, however you want to describe it. And obviously it can take over your life and it's quite hard to undo. You know, I guess one of the advantages of of my upbringing, circling back to that, was I saw it. You know, when I was really young, my dad was a politician and he was a conservative politician. He became a Labour politician and crossing the floor isn't something that politicians tend to do very often it it tends to be quite a story politically when it happens but because he was married to my mum his father whose family were Sainsbury's it became this kind of mad story and we had journalists in our garden um, trying to take photos and we were just hounded and my parents were just destroyed completely um, by it and it was uh this most bizarre experience as a child to be so deeply hated and even and you're not really old enough to understand it but I was old enough to see that it was on the front page of the papers at school and people you know point to you at whisper and things like that and I think I'd seen that and my husband's mum was also a politician and they had a difficult time as well a few years later and I think for you know we'd both just seen that some of these things that you know, the grass is always greener, that there's something that's so exciting about it, something great about it. But ultimately, like, we we don't build, you know, especially in the British media, we don't build people up for long before we like to find a way to tear them straight down again. And I just wasn't, I just never wanted to play that game. I guess I feel grateful going in that I think I had my eyes a little bit more open than I probably would have done if I hadn't had that experience when I was young. Delicious Yellow kind of exploded early 2015 and and suddenly kind of lots of narrative about the brand and about the story in all sorts of kind of media outlets. And then the next few years after that were kind of just a whirlwind in the most kind of extreme sense. My parents got divorced, lots of learnings there. Um, My my uh, mother-in-law was diagnosed with a terminal brain cancer. There was just a lot happening we then got pregnant and I think it was just I don't know I guess it's just a solidifying of the fact that like none of these things matter and I think it's it's so easy to look at it and think you know live with the when I mentality of when I achieve this or you know 
when I'm famous or whatever it is. And I just, I guess it's just the fundamental quest, isn't it, for happiness that that I feel I'm certainly very much on at the moment. And I, I just don't think that that's the answer. And I really appreciate that someone could be listening to this and think, oh, it's really easy for you to say that, you know, and I, I, I hear that completely, but I just, I still kind of stand by the fact that I, I think that it's always easier to think that you'll be happier when this happens or happier when this happens. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. After launching in 2012, the Deliciously Ella blog quickly developed a large following. Ella started off by focusing on community-based projects like supper clubs and cooking classes. And then, in 2015, she got her first book deal. That was the moment because our social media community sold us out books before it was published, which is quite an unusual problem to have. And also, it was really the advent of the power of social media. You know, it was, this was very beginning of 2015. And... It was, I think, one quite an early example of how impactful platforms like Instagram can be commercially because, you know, for a cookbook to do really well would normally need to be tied into a TV series or something like that. And this was all done through the power of organic community. Um, and up until that point, I think people were a little bit unsure about whether or not it was, you know, how commercially viable social media could be. Um, and after that came out, it then kind of really caught away. People weren't talking about plant-based food. People weren't talking about the impact that diet can have on nutrition and lifestyle in the kind of mainstream media. So it sparked a big debate. It began a lot of conversation, a lot of interest in this area. And, 
you know, I, I was like so reluctant to set for so long, but it really was kind of quite a pioneering book. There wasn't nothing like it had been published. Um anyway, and and I met my now husband and, and business partner Matthew quite shortly after that. And it became very clear, you know, that this opportunity was vast. Um, there was suddenly this groundswell of interest in better for you food, in plant-based, in natural. There was nothing on supermarket shelves. You know, now you can get oat milk and almond milk and soya milk absolutely everywhere. Then there were no plant-based options anywhere. So kind of it felt like there were 101 different opportunities and what what could I do with it? And I was also being offered to license the brand for this and that and the next thing. And I think what I realized really quickly was that I didn't want to do that. I always wanted to be in control of what I was doing and I, I didn't want to kind of have to sell out and to some extent I've always been very um probably like to my own detriment very mission-led and I guess and that's I say detriment because it probably makes me not as commercial as I as I could be because I care so deeply about the why and it was early in 2015 and and I was paid you know really good money to develop recipes to promote floor cleaner and and I had to say like on camera you know and I was so inspired by the delicious almond fragrance in this floor cleaner so I made an almond soup and I was like oh my god I can't do this like I can't be an influencer this is just not for me I can't I can't sell floor cleaner via soup and and so I want I didn't want to like I don't think most people can Ella don't worry it was it, it was just and also it's strange because you're not in control of your money either you know you're always waiting to see if someone else wants to pay you you can't really do much to change it and I just I didn't want to live like that and so I wasn't interested in licensing the, licensing the brand but I did want to take advantage of these all the you know the kind of massive groundswell and you know I, I don't think opportunities grow on trees I think every now and again in life there's a semblance of opportunity and if you want it you have to take it and you have to run really 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 fast with it because someone else will do it otherwise so Matthew and I started talking about it a lot and he was working in finance and hated his job and always wanted to start a business so he said he was he's a kind of much more natural entrepreneur would be looking at like a water bottle and have an idea of what to do with it and so we said okay look let, like let's just floor do cleaner this. Yeah, floor cleaner, almond yeah. floor cleaner. After after floor floor cleaner. Exactly. <laughs> and um, anyway, and so he quit his job, and we'd known each other three four months at this point. We were living together. We were starting a business together. We'd got a dog together, and he always jokes like part of the reason because he proposed really early. We'd been together about five months. And he always jokes like part of the reason he did it was because it was getting quite embarrassing going into like important business meetings, you know, trying to get leases or stockists and saying, oh, it's my girlfriend. And people being like, how long have you been together? And it's like, oh yeah, four months. <laughs> you don't sound that serious. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably have rented us a, a space. You think we're probably going to break up before it's going to even be open. But it was very clear that, you know, my skill set is not in the kind of traditional business side of things. Like I am all brand and that's what I really care about and the storytelling and the marketing and the community and the USP of our brand and how we have, you know, authenticity and credibility, which has has allowed us to excel in a way we never ever would have been able to without it. But it doesn't work on its own. Um, and he has been the most amazing support and he he's really built the business in so many ways into what it is and he never gets the credit for it he's a much more kind of um he's not quiet person but he's a much more behind the scenes kind of person but he built the supply chain the commercials he runs our finance he you know he really really runs the business 
so yeah it's been a kind of interesting journey anyway we've gone kind of up down and all around it's been anything but linear we've had years of amazing growth years of really stagnant growth um some great products some rubbish products some great listings some rubbish listings and it's been a bit like a being in a tumble dryer in lots of ways you kind of go round and round and round and round and round but um yeah it's, it somehow kind of got us to this point which does feel much more stable than it than it's ever felt you said earlier you know you had this really bad sickness and it helped you um understand the impact of diet and nutrition and like take a real interest in health and well-being but obviously the first thing i think of when i hear that is i mean that sounds really fucking extreme what happened to you it sounds awful but that then also sounds like um you know you're forced into uh, looking at wellness in the most pure sense because you have no other choice for an extreme reality yet manage to find a super niche health experience and turn it into a generalized consumer interest business that's relevant to so many people so i guess that's that's the context if that makes sense that i'm trying to understand like how do you go from like a super personal niche experience into something that enough people actually fucking care about yeah, it's a great question. So I will try and unpack it. So I, so 2012, I started deliciousyellow.com. 2013, I started social media. And 2014, I was doing cooking classes, supper clubs. And beginning of 2015, my first cookbook came out. And by this point, there was a kind of good sense of community, you know, half a million people or so on Instagram, you know, seven, several million people a week on the website. And then it was... Then, then after that, him and I met and we sat down and we were like, let's stop. At this point, I'd been completely reactive. It was an opportunity would come in, I'll do it. Can you teach us some cooking classes? Yep, I'll start cooking classes. Can you do a supper club? Yep, I'll do a supper club. Um, You know, you can write a cookbook. Okay, so I approached literary agents, you know, proposed a, um, a book proposal, went to meet publishers, got it published. So it wasn't like I was just sitting around waiting but it was very much okay what do you want I'll go and do that as opposed to sitting down and being like right this is where I'd like to be five years from now and um and it was when him and I started working together and was like we don't want to rely on that we don't want to be relying on other people to fund the company we want to create goods and services that we sell that we can forecast that we know what's happening and it's kind of ours to to win or lose with um and so that was mid 2015 that we started doing that and I think this kind of niche into mainstream was I guess it was always the case because I knew why I had was so extraordinarily niche and it feels a bit less niche now because it resembles a lot of long COVID and the more extreme end of long COVID um but at that point you know it was an effectively an invisible illness that nobody really understood and um And so I was always very passionate about trying to make it as relatable as possible and always wanted to have that semblance of taking something negative into a positive. And I knew that would never happen if it was really only specific to me. So it was always about a more mainstream audience and how do we open up kind of tapping into our health and well-being every single day in a way that is applicable to you, to me, to the next person. And I think that's what always made me kind of very non-dogmatic in my approach. And um, and I, I I probably shouldn't say this, but I got in so much trouble. Um, the, like basically the first interview I did when the book really took off was I said in the um, interview, I said, oh, I don't really like vegans, which went down like uh, not well after publishing a vegan cookbook. 
And it was just because I was so passionate about trying to open it up to everybody. And I think sometimes in that realm, it can be very much like, this is the way to do it. It's a hundred percent or it's nothing. If you're, if you're not doing a hundred percent, you're doing it wrong. And I, I never wanted people to feel that way. And I think it's continues to be my frustration with, with the wellbeing industry. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I think, I think a lot of the industry is amazing. And I think I'm so grateful that health and wellbeing is, you know, both mental and physical is part of the mainstream narrative at this point. But I think a huge sway that the industry still exists on quick fixes, on short term solutions, on aesthetics over how you actually feel in your mind, in your body and emulating other people, more extreme ways of doing things. And it just doesn't last. And ultimately, like to, to gain good total well-being is something you're going to look at for the rest of your life not over the next week um and again I felt that it needed to be kind of gentler more open advice and again I don't know if that's always like the most commercially viable option I think that you know sometimes people want to be told exactly what to do and promise these slightly unrealistic results from these slightly unrealistic ways of going about improving your health but I just it just doesn't it just doesn't sit with me I just don't think it's necessarily particularly helpful or long lasting I mean it's funny you say that you know uh, many many comments about the health and wellness industry and, uh, and and stuff obviously building a business inside it I you know at heights one of our ads that gets trolled the most is we have an ad that basically just says this is not a quick fix because it's not the reason our name is Heights is because we want to come from a place of positivity, helping people reach their heights over a long period of time, not sell on fear or concern or anything around short fixes. The other thing I think we do really unconventionally is uh, we tell everyone like the best thing you can do is eat a better diet. Here's how to have a better diet. Clue is in the name, supplement. It's to supplement a healthy, balanced diet. But lots of people are too busy for that. So therefore, good second best option but first best option is definitely better diet and there's so much nuance within this whole this whole statement that everyone just turns off and very similar to you like because we're very values led and stuff you know we we struggle with that messaging a lot but we won't change it because I think that the rest is bullshit and I think it's really important to be honest and you win long term just maybe slower but you really do win it's also literally what science says. So we're a science-backed brand. It's really difficult to like compromise that if that's what you're doing because it just the the stuff isn't true otherwise. But I mean, and I know this is going out the very start of January. So you know, less than ten percent of people who've ever started something in January keep it up for the rest of the year. Most people have quit by the twelfth of January. So I think this idea, as you said, is like these quick fixes and these promises that you can swallow one pill or you can do one crash diet. First of all, they don't work because they're just completely unrealistic and the data is incredibly clear that 90% of people will not stick to it. So you're just kind of setting yourself up to feel worse about yourself because you've broken the self-trust of not fulfilling what you said you were going to do, but what you said you were going to do was impossible for you to do. So kind of quit while you're ahead and change those goals today. Um, and and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just interesting how, interesting how much we want that. And I know I wanted that at the beginning. You know, I thought, well, there must be one thing I can do and then I'll do it and then I can stop doing it, but I'll stay really well and I'll stay feeling great 
and I can live the way I lived before. And it's like, logically, that makes no sense whatsoever. Like you can't just do one thing for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, for even six weeks, 12 weeks, and think that those results will last. Of course they won't last. So I think it's just trying to flip it all on its head, isn't it? Of trying to think about simple things that you can do every day, or, or, you know, most days or several times a week that over the next year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years will fundamentally shift your foundation. So you are a healthier, happier person. You're more energized, you're clearer, you're calmer. But that's not great marketing. You know, like saying, eat a few more carrots, like take a multivitamin. You know, it's it's not massively compelling versus like, I'll get you shredded in six weeks. But ultimately, it's what actually we need. Like, we we have a mental and a physical health crisis on our hands. Like, we really do. You know, we're watching the NHS crumble before our eyes under the kind of insurmountable weight of lifestyle-related diseases. Like, we know so much of what so many of us suffer is avoidable, or at least we're massively able to improve it. And yet that education is not widely available. It's not a topic that people kind of massively informed on. And there's still just massive confusion. And one thing that I always say, and I feel very strongly about is that, you know, if you listen to a podcast or you read anything in the media and it's like an argument between, or it feels like an argument between, should you be plant-based or should you be paleo or should you, you know, take this vitamin or this vitamin or should you sleep seven hours or eight hours or should you do yoga or HIIT training or breath work or meditation or whatever it is. It almost feels like we do nothing because we're not sure exactly what to do because it all feels slightly contradictory. But actually it doesn't. Like ultimately if what we're arguing about is those like more kind of nitty gritty details. In a way, we're in a great place. Like if, if we take the core principles of all of that, which is move your body eat better, actively take care of yourself most days, we would be winning. It probably won't really matter whether you choose HIIT training or paleo or yoga or plant-based or a mix of all of the above. I think the confusion is unnecessary, but ultimately what it's really, everyone's really asking you to do is to kind of revert back to simpler ways of taking care of yourself. You know, there's no expert really under the sun who wants you to spend absurd amount of money on quick fixes. No, and most of the stuff that's really good for us is free. Exactly. It's sunlight. You know, like sunlight is proven to boost your serotonin, which makes you happier. And, you know, I know I'll find it. You know, the last six weeks I've been so busy and I've really kind of not done all the things I normally do on a daily-ish basis to take care of myself. Meditate, do yoga, cook more food, cook more kind of home-cooked meals and things. And I've really let so much of it slip. And I watch myself being more irritable, grumpier, more reactive, less patient, you know, both at home and at work, just a kind of much worse version of myself. And and I guess every time it's almost like an illustration to me, it's like, if we don't put the building blocks in place, we've almost got no chance. Um, and I know it's more complicated than that. I'm not trying to be overly reductive, but it's also like we're so busy looking for these grand solutions and yet we're not doing the basics, like getting sunlight, like going for a walk, like eating some lentils. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. Um, also noticing, you know, it's January or saying January when this comes out. It's a time for habits. You know, it's the one of the most important things if considering building new habits is knowing yourself, you know, having the self-awareness for what you're like. If you can pick up a bunch of things and run with them all at the same time, more power to you. But most of us can't, right? You pick one thing and try and work on that for a period of time and then build the base for the next one. 
Completely. And I think you've got to look at it over decades, you know, not over days. And I think that's everything that we get wrong in January is that we we want to change everything all at once. And also, I think that we see wellness as being just our diet or just the way that we exercise as opposed to kind of nourishing our mental health and our total emotional well-being. And I also think that's almost the foundation of it. It's kind of a toss between that and sleep, obviously you know, better than anyone. But like, if you're, if you're not sleeping properly, you know, you are wired to crave less healthy food, to crave kind of, you know, simple sugars and things like that. So it's almost impossible to stick to your healthy diet goals if you're not sleeping. And also if your self-esteem is really low and you don't think that you're worth taking care of and you don't really feel like you deserve it or you're worthy of it, it's going to be really hard again to make those changes from a place of positivity which is I think really the only way to make genuine long-term change when you're busy which pretty much everyone listening to the show is going to be busy juggling a lot of different things like you've only got so much mental capacity so I think you've got to put the foundations in place and start to add things in not just cut everything out because it's a surefire way to do what 90% of people do and be done with all your resolutions by the 12th of January. Being an entrepreneur is really hard work. You're under unique pressures. It's why Ella, like all successful founders, has needed grit. It feels as a founder, as a leader in a business, that you've got to be putting in 100% pretty much 100% of the time. And like, we both certainly see that, you know, we've been working together for, gosh, almost eight years now. And that's since, you know, the Shella really became a company. And I can just like plot perfectly on a graph the times that we're both kind of burn out or not 100% invested or a bit distracted. And the business dips, you know, you every single day feel like you have to come in and you've got to ask the questions and you've got to really inject that energy that passion that purpose and yeah it's it's a you know and therefore in a way there's never enough on a professional level because I do believe in momentum and I do think companies are going forwards or they're going backwards I don't you know once you're as big as Ernst and Young or you know (laughs) Unilever maybe it's different but I I think you know pretty much any small medium-sized business like you're going up or you're going down I don't think that you can stay still for more than about a week No, and I think this is the thing, right? If you look in nature, the things that people do, people, all creatures do to survive, um, it's brutal out there. And it's the same in businesses. You know, one of the big opportunities around the internet and social media is just the boom in entrepreneurship. There's just millions more businesses created almost every year globally than there ever were before because education and the access and the technology and the tools that are all needed you know speak to people on this podcast start their business 20 years ago and they're like well when we we, like raised two million pounds we spent a million pound of it on servers and like now it's like ten dollars on aws so it's like the business challenges all change the profile of the type of things that you can do as an entrepreneur in ways we don't think about because that's not our generation of um experience and yet um you know it's it's therefore like ingrained in you, this hustle, um, whether you support or anti-hustle culture, you personally like, have to have this edge or, of hustle and don't say die attitude because it is all a game of survival, which therefore makes it a game of growth, which therefore, this is what I've always said about entrepreneurship, I think is a good good reason why most entrepreneurs have generalised anxiety. Because anxiety is spending time in the future. 
That's like literally the the, the description of anxiety. And that's basically business planning every single day. You don't have any other option. You're imagining a future that doesn't even exist. And I think it's one of the reasons why I feel quite passionately anti the kind of hashtag, you know, entrepreneurship, girl, boss, like everyone should start a business culture that I think we've seen quite a lot over the last how many years. There's a lot of glamorization of owning, starting, founding a business. And and in a way that's great because, you know, encouraging people, empowering people, you really want to do it, then it's great. The number of resources available. But I think the reason I'm I'm really skeptical about it is because I think it takes you know, it, it is your life. And as you and as you said, as soon as it stops being that, then the next business comes in and they are willing to work harder and they, they will take your space. Like, no, you know, you see it, our office is right next to um, the, the old flagship for Topshop. And I'm sure everyone listening knows what Topshop was, but it was like the brand. I mean, I'm in my early thirties and, you know, when I was a teenager, that was the coolest place in the world, they just done the Kate Moss collaborations. Like it was extraordinary. It's empty. It's vacant. And every single day I walk past it and I'm like, that is a sign that no one's ever safe. And I don't say that to sound like the most depressing person in the world. But I think it's just, you know, you can never ever rest on your laurels. You've always got to be moving forward. You've always got to be kind of innovating and looking at what am I not doing well? What can I be doing better? Where do we need to improve? Where's the growth going to come from? And I think this idea, you know, and I'll see it sometimes, you know, because I, I try and be really honest. And if I say, you know, look, I'm really burnt out. People on Instagram be like, well, just stop, just quit. <laughs> like, oh no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Like we've got 50 people to pay every month. We've got a multi-million pound loan against our name from buying our shareholders out. Like there's that idea that you could just not, not do it is kind of mad. We'd be in a lot of trouble if we, if we just said, oh, we don't fancy it anymore. Yeah. I think that's also it, right? The, the pressures that you choose along the way, you know, you are stuck with them for a period of time. That, that period of time might not be forever. That's obviously where exits and failures come from. But, you know, in this game, I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had with people where often, you know, people come to me and ask for business advice on, um, on businesses they want to start. Um, this is actually a very relevant thing to share because I'm, you know, I'm very happy running, um, uh, Secret Leaders, my podcast, it became so big that we needed to hire a team. And so uh, we have, it's a separate entity. It's got a separate team. It's a separate company. It's bootstrapped, whereas Heights is funded and all of that kind of stuff. And it's great. And I'm obviously very happy about it because it's going well, which is really nice. But it's a really good lesson of um, what happens if it goes well, which is not something I thought about when starting, I started this before Heights. But, you know, you start Heights afterwards, I was like, I'm all in on this. And then the other business starts to go really well as well. And so suddenly you're like, okay, but I can't just stop either of those businesses. So now I have two businesses, which sounds very much, again, like what someone would say, you know, well, poor you. Um, but you have to figure these things out. And actually, one of the things that people do spend a lot of time thinking about is what happens if my business fails, which is very sensible, and they should, because it's what happens to 90% of businesses, etc. But for 10% that don't fail... What happens if, and this happened to me in my last business, what happens if you're stuck running a business you really hate, you've you've fallen out of love with? There are quite a slim list of options of things you can do about that. And every day you're not doing one of them, you're getting this gnawing sense of self-hatred. 
happening slowly but surely, dampening your spirit. It's a super complicated existence, you know. At the end of the day, employees have this amazing opportunity um, that they can look elsewhere. Obviously, a lot of people feel stuck in financial times, you know, to uh, in, in hard times anyway, to like jump ship. But there is always the optionality. Founders kind of stuck there. They're basically fiduciary responsibility. You go down with the ship or you keep the ship up or you figure something out. There just aren't that many options. So I think it's such an interesting topic there as well. Like, you know, burnout, depression, all of these. It doesn't ma- doesn't fucking matter. Sorry, you've got to go back to work. <laughs> these things... These, these things suck, but you've got to do them. Exactly. And I think, and it's not that, and I don't mean that as a like, to your point, like it, it's, a, it's a great problem to have in lots of ways, but I think it's just why I find it frustrating sometimes the glamorization of entrepreneurship, because I think the reality is so different to what's projected so often. And it comes with loads of interesting opportunities, but it also comes with, an almost insurmountable amount of intensity and pressure. And you definitely, and I certainly completely have had those moments where I just feel trapped. I hate it. I'm exhausted. I'm completely out of my depth. Like I'm not seeing my children, whatever it is, I'm I'm miserable. And yet you you have no choice but to keep going. Um and, you know, I'm grateful. I don't, I don't feel that way at the moment, but it's, you know, I have felt that way. And I think it's just, it's okay. <laughs> That's not the career option you want. And by the way, I think it's a really amazing career option. It's given me certainly so, so, so much. And, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I think this just like projection of, of everyone should do this and it's perfect and give you this really shiny Instagrammable life. I don't think is true. And, and, you know, I know oftentimes people set will sort of say, oh, well, people don't project that. And I think I'm, I'm not sure your view on it, but I think it's because so often when these challenges are happening, they're not things that you can talk about publicly. Um, you know, it wouldn't make, you know, it's not going to help you to, um, to kind of put forward things. So you're like, oh, I think we might go bust tomorrow. Like that's, that's not really something you can share. <laughs> Um, you know, any supplier or stockist or team member is going to feel a little apprehensive about working with you if you share that. And so I think retrospectively, there are often stories that you can share to illustrate it. But I think it's one of those things that you you generally speaking can't talk about it when you're in it, um, bar a kind of small number of relatively senior people. So one thing I would say to that, which um, you might find completely mental, but it's a fun share, is um, I thought a lot, when, I, when my last business failed, and I thought a lot about why why did it fail, what did I do wrong, what can I do differently, et cetera, et cetera. And I decided that for this business, for Heights, not for Secret Leaders to be fair, but for Heights, I was going to build in public. So the whole thing, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, our revenue, our stats, our emails, like, you know, what the challenges inside the business, everything, what's and all. Um, and that's been a really interesting experience because obviously much like you as well, you know, we're a physical product. So there are downstream implications with suppliers and all of these things that you tend to want to keep closer to your chest. And, um, it's been a really fascinating experience to do it, to be honest. I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone because it's, uh, it's just super unusual, but what it is amazing for is the other day, someone just totally randomly out of the blue messaged me on LinkedIn. I don't know this person. I've never never spoken to her before, which she said the whole lot of. But she basically pointed out something that I'd shared two years ago, you know, how much it helped her then, what had happened to her business since, the impact it had had on her. And, and she just successfully exited her business because of something she'd read in that update about something that was going wrong at Heights at the time. I think that's like a really 
uh, for me, um, a really rewarding thing to find out because you do this and a lot of people respond to me saying, like, thank you. This is amazing that you're willing to share stuff when it's bad. It's not going well at the moment, particularly. It's all flat. Um, and I'm sharing that and I'm sharing why and what we're doing wrong and why I think we're doing it wrong and that it's not better next month and it wasn't better last month and how annoying that all feels and the whole thing. Um, but it feels really different like with the hindsight of experience to know that something you did two years ago has had a positive impact that someone can even be bothered to reach out and say, this is what you said, this is how it made the impact, this is what's changed for me. Um, and I think that that is a really interesting shift for me as well in my anxiety. Um, sometimes when you keep a lot of stuff to yourself rather than, you know, I'm an oversharer, you said you're an oversharer. This is obviously classic oversharing by doing it all on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, but there is an aspect to it where there isn't a lot, le- there's a lot less to be anxious about once you've said it, you know? Yeah. No, I can completely see that. I think our challenge is just because, because we're reliant on Tesco's and Sainsbury's, etc. Yeah, that's very fair. And we had it because we, um, early on, um, so Matthew and I started working together mid-2015 and we initially thought we were going to really kind of roll the company out via physical sites. We wanted to um, kind of create community hubs where people could eat plant-based food. So we opened our first cafe and our second and our third and we were operating them from a central kitchen. From day one, we knew we'd need to get to about six or seven sites to make the central kitchen make sense. But at the same time, we started selling food products into retail. So initially into Starbucks, into Waitrose, into Ocado, Holland & Barrett. And we started to then unlock a lot more listings and different products. And that was absolutely taking off. And it was much less capital intensive. And it, we were quite reluctant to raise money early on. We wanted to keep a semblance of control at that point. And so... We looked at the two. It was impossible with the resources we had to do both in terms of people resources, but also financial resources. We couldn't invest the cash flow to scale up the products business and to open another three to four sites, which we needed to do to make each site profitable at site level, but not as a total level because the central kitchen cost was dragging them all down. Anyway, and so we made a decision to close two of the three sites and not have a central kitchen. Everything was just done from that one site and focus on the food products business. And, you know, totally honestly, like I dragged my heels for like three or four months because I just was so nervous about the impact on the brand at this point. And um, anyway, but I mean, it was it was not working. And anyway, we finally did it, which was absolutely the right decision and absolutely the wrong decision for me to kind of put it off. But in it, like we then had these like really mad media stories about how the business was going bust and about how we were going under and how badly run the business was you know and I got I got a call from the CEO of one of the big four worried about stock on shelf etc because we were going bust and we were never going bust we like the business was doing really well we were unlocking thousands and thousands of um of distribution points um but it was just anyway it was a really interesting insight into the challenge of certainly for me of like putting the challenge the the problem I guess more publicly because they jumped to conclusions that weren't right and it was all fine in the end but I still have it all the time like oh when their cafes failed and you had to close them and it's like oh no it actually wasn't quite like that like we needed to open three more we had three more sites 
but we chose to put the money into the other side of the business that was doing really, really well. No one mentioned in a single article that we now had, you know, have many products listed in several thousand stores, etc. No one. Just they're going bust, like she's moron. Here you go. I remember being so frustrated, even when we had, you know, 30 products in market, you know, outselling the national brands. Food blogger. And I was like, I don't have a food blog. I have a business that employs so many people that's turning over multi million pounds, you know, that's doing really disruptive things in this space. And it was such, it was a personal thing, but it really bothered me so much. I found it very condescending, very generally quite misogynistic. And this perception that, um, there was no way that, that that could have happened. And it was literally not until, honestly, this year, and we're recording this very end of 2022, that I think that I was ever described in a kind of newspaper as, as an entrepreneur or like a business owner. It's interesting, isn't it? Because people do, I mean, generally people do hold a story about someone in their heads and then it takes a lot to change that story. And I massively agree hearing you say, food blogger feels misogynistic and downplaying your achievements, etc. But obviously, there might also be the innocent side of it, which is people put you in a box, that's the box they know you in for a period of time, it takes quite a lot to change a box. And I mean, I'm amazed that 20 million is what I had to do it. But you'd think a couple of million would have been good enough to change that perception. Um, What is what is your biggest challenge? You mentioned earlier, you know, the challenges have all changed, which is understandable. And I, I relate to it, you know, you get to five million pound business, different challenges from one, 10, different from five, they're all challenges, though. So 2023, what are your big challenges that you're most excited to tackle or most fearful for? Yeah, it's a great question. I think 2022, our biggest challenge was people um, coming. We made we made a few bad hires in COVID and the culture of the business was not what it had ever been before. The excitement, the energy, the dynamism, the kind of wrangling with working from home. We're not a working from home business. We're a highly collaborative, fast paced business. So we need to be predominantly office based we were not the culture that we wanted to be at the beginning of last year. And so that was the big focus for 2022 was kind of getting an absolute A team in place, having that energy, that excitement. And I think we're closing the year with that. And it's that feels really, really good. And I think puts us on a good footing for 2023. I think honestly, it's almost like we've kind of stabilized things and we've grown and we know really who we are now. And we're very clear on that. And I guess 2023 is the challenges. I don't mean what's next in a kind of really hypothetical sense, but it's, it is kind of where is the next big area of growth going to come from? You know, it's understanding like which international markets, you know, on a personal level, like where are we willing to spend time or invest time? It's which kind of areas of the business are we developing? It it feels like the core is now really good. It's really strong. It's really stable. It's exciting in lots of ways because I think it's opening up kind of much more exciting questions on growth and on strategy, but equally almost a bit daunting. What do you think is a lesson that you keep learning over and over again? As in, is there a lesson you think you've learnt and then realise as another year rolls on you haven't? And I'm asking that question for the first time because as you were saying people, I was reflecting on, okay, if you'd have asked me end of 2022 last year, I'd have said people, I, I think I've got this figured out. And then this year, end of 2022, I'm probably saying the same thing, actually. I think I'm relearning the same lesson, annoyingly. I think I think I had one in the first kind of half, 
two thirds of, of the journey so far, which was, was catastrophizing and realizing that nothing is ever quite as bad as it seems. Like problems roll in and you think, oh my God, this is it. Like we're done or this, this is really a serious issue. And they're always more solvable than you think. And I think that's that was kind of the big lesson that I feel like I'm slowly overcoming and go, you know, go back to wellness tips. Like that has been a lot from meditating and mindfulness and kind of contextualizing life um, and having that that more kind of calm clarity in the way that I think. I think the ongoing problem is, I guess it's just like restoring your energy tanks. I think that's what I always, because I, I live a lot with like, okay, I'm going to put everything into this. And when this project's done, I'm going to have a bit more work-life balance or I'm going to have a bit more time with my children or I'm, you know, I think that's that's what it is for me and it's realising that will never come. And so how do you shift your day-to-day to be much, much, much more sustainable? Because I think we're sprinting probably too much of the time and it's, you know, I think we hit the beginning stages of burnout too often um, and that is something that I think I really need to work on. Mm. Uh, okay, last question. What is your advice to entrepreneurs that want to go and build a great, big, dynamic consumer brand like yours? The only thing you can do is to do it. I think you can kind of put it off forever. And I think you can hypothetically kind of go through every worst case scenario and every best case scenario. And none of them are right. Like everything we thought might go wrong hasn't gone wrong and everything that we thought could never go wrong has gone wrong. You know, the first product we launched with isn't in market anymore. And, you know, we've developed it, we've learned, we've grown. And I just think that it's it's so easy to kind of keep putting it off and keep putting it off and iterate and read more books or do a business degree or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that there's not value in that, but I, I don't think anything can teach you like just doing it and I think know that it's going to be relentless know that it's going to be really hard but know that it'll be so rewarding so interesting add so much depth and value to your life and if you're willing to make it your number one priority then it'll be the best thing you ever do but you just got it you do just have to stop it's better just to do it and because you're going to learn more from that than you'll ever learn from your spreadsheets you know, and also don't feel like you need to go and do a massive fundraising round and launch it in the biggest, snazziest, jazziest way. Like, if anything, especially if it's your first business, I wouldn't do that because you could give away a massive slug of equity that probably won't be worth it and you could learn over the next few years and then sell. If you do then need to raise money, you could sell it for infinitely less um, and own a lot more of your company. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that get to the end of their journey and they own, own 5% of their company. Yeah, really sage advice. We had exactly that from the founder of Fiverr who eloquently said, fuck valuations, it's about ownership. And it's a great insight. There's a lot in there and there might be a moment where that's not how you feel anymore. But I think give yourself the lived experience of it before you make that decision. And there may be a lot of reasons you make that decision like, financial stability or not staying up all night worrying about your cash flow like that that all makes sense but I think it's very easy to give a lot of your company away on day one for money that you don't even know if you're going to be spending it in the right way because you don't really know what your business is going to look like because you've never done it before spot on Ella thank you so much for your time it's been awesome chatting to you pleasure well thanks for having me Ella Mills founder of Deliciously Ella a brilliant conversation. It made me reflect a lot about fame and shame and the complex relationship between the two. 
And I couldn't really agree more with what she says right at the end there about not giving away too much of your company. I know from personal experience how important and painful that is. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman.